Hello, and welcome to the Accountability Coach Podcast, where we discuss proven business success principles related to helping you make more money and work less so you can enjoy having your ideal business and your ideal life. This is Ann Backrack. Today, we have a special guest with us who I think you will find very well credentialed and knowledgeable in helping people to overcome imposter syndrome so they can be even more successful. Cheryl Anjanette is the author of The Imposter Lies Within, Silence Your Inner Critic, Tame Your Fear, and Unleash Your Badassery. She's an international speaker, thought leader, and trainer on the topics of imposter syndrome, burnout, and peak performance. As a natural extension of her 30-year career as an entrepreneur with her wellness practice and advanced certifications in integrative hypnotherapy, neuro-linguistic programming, cognitive behavioral neuroscience, clinical stress, anxiety, and emotional regulation, strategy, and human performance improvement, Cheryl has dedicated her business to helping individuals and organizations overcome the debilitating effects of imposter syndrome. Welcome, Cheryl. We really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thanks so much, Anne. It's so good to be here. Well, I like to just get right to it. So just so we're all on the same page, what is imposter syndrome? Yeah, I, you know what? I love starting out with that question because there are so many misunderstandings about what it is. So very simply, imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern and the emphasis is on the word pattern where someone feels like they're not good enough in spite of their accomplishments or despite evidence to the contrary. So there's actually a disconnect between our actual accomplishments and how we're showing up in the world and the way we feel about them, if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more just in case some people might want a little bit deeper definition? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, imposter syndrome does not mean you're really an imposter. And it doesn't mean that other people think we're an imposter. It's that we feel like we're the imposter. It's internalized. So it's like an internalized cognitive dissonance, if you're familiar with that. It's, it's um, this disconnect. It's, it's reality does not match perception. So it's not simply feeling some doubt. That's where a lot of people get thrown off with imposter syndrome, they'll say, oh, you're feeling doubt or you're a beginner, for example. Therefore, you're feeling imposter syndrome, but that will go away as soon as you do the thing, as soon as you do whatever that thing is. And imposter syndrome really is not an experience. And I always say experience. I never say it's something you have. I don't think we need to own it. I never say it's something you're struggling with or suffering from, because those are harsh words. You know, they are our subconscious mind hears everything. So I always say experience because experience is something that can be temporary. We're experiencing this, but we can change that experience. And so imposter syndrome is something that you, when you're experiencing it, it's really not because you're new at something. You, you know, you may experience imposter syndrome and be new at something. Those can correlate, but it's not necessarily a causation because we're meant to have some doubt when we're a beginner. That's normal, that's healthy. And we're meant to have doubt 
at any period in our life in what I call the healthy zone. Doubt is our discernment muscle. You know, it, it it's a good thing. Otherwise, we'd really believe the real imposters out there if you think about it. But it's when that doubt or that fear gets into what I call the maladaptive zone and it creates this cognitive dissonance, this this disconnect. So it's really not a good match. So that's really, you know, as we get into it more, I kind of talked a little bit about this, this concept and that I coined in my book, The Imposter Lies Within. Um, that That's actually the book that I, that is out there. And it's called The Healthy Zone. And the healthy zone is just this adaptive zone where almost every emotion or experience is healthy. So, for example, as I mentioned, doubt is is healthy in an adaptive kind of um, arena. We feel that doubt. We move past it. We figure out whether it's you know true. Do we really need to have this doubt? Can we trust this process? Can we trust ourselves? Can we trust this other person? And then we move beyond it. We don't sit in it. We don't blow it out of proportion or fear. Fear is our great protector. It's, you know, we need fear. Fear can be our friend. It gives us that bit of adrenaline, that energy to move through things. It doesn't need to be, you know, that thing that stops us in our tracks or keeps us from doing the things we really want to do in life. So this idea of the healthy zone is really, really core to how I look at imposter syndrome and most importantly, how to get past it. I love that. You said a lot of key things there. And the one about fear in particular, you know, the way I look at it as, you know, successful people are comfortable with being uncomfortable mm. all the time. And for most people, that uncomfortableness is fear, right? Mm-hmm. And successful people learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable so they can get to their next level because we all have a next level and we all can learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, I think, and then overcoming those fears or whatever we have that potentially is holding us back. And I loved what you said about reality doesn't match perception. Right. So I think that really clearly defines it in a, in a nutshell that that's really what's going on. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, you touched on something that is another kind of area where people get um, confused about, well, is this imposter syndrome or not? And that's this idea of successful people really do learn to feel the fear and do it anyway. Most of the time, sometimes all the time. But, you know, the vast majority of people that are experiencing imposter syndrome are highly successful. It's really not the beginners, you know, sometimes. But, you know, as I said, beginners, you're supposed to have a little more doubt. You haven't done the thing. You know, you're checking, you're, you're learning something new. You're on a learning curve. But when successful people are still experiencing this disconnect, they've learned to feel the fear and do it anyway. So I hear a lot of people that will say, well, just feel the fear, do it anyway, move through it. And that's the cure for imposter syndrome. And, you know, that's actually kind of a dangerous message. And the reason I say that is that when somebody's still feeling that disconnect, 
you know, we're talking about Michelle Obama, Albert Einstein, Tina Fey, Maya Angelou, you know, Steve Martin, you know, the list goes on and on. It's like some something like 85% of people experience this. They've done that. And so they think, wow, well, I'm successful. I feel the fear and I do it anyway. I better not let anybody know that I'm still experiencing this rumination and this anxiety and that I never feel good enough and that I keep feeling like someone's going to figure me out. They're going to find me out as, as a fraud. You know, the game will be up. It's like Maya Angelou's quote. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but she says, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find me out now. I've run a game on everybody and they're going to find me out. You know, and Sheryl Sandberg says kind of the same thing in Lean In. So it's this idea that, yes, it's so important to use fear as our friend. And as you said, to become actually comfortable with the uncomfortable. I, I do that a lot with my clients with hypnotherapy. I teach them how to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. But if you're still feeling that feeling like not good enough, not worthy, not deserving, like, oh, my voice doesn't matter, or I don't matter, you know, or I was just lucky. There's something below that. There's something deeper that is causing this. You know, it's not, it, it, it goes really, really deep to our belief system. Okay. So is imposter syndrome something everybody has to some degree? And then you know, do we just kind of live with that to that some degree or what do we do with that? Yeah, so that's a very common thing that I hear. And, you know, it it's almost like the pendulum swings, right? We first, in our experience, we feel like we must be the only one. We've got to hide it from everyone, suppress this. Everybody else is nailing it, right? And so we feel very alone in it. And then we learn that so many people are experiencing this. It feels like everyone, the pendulum swings from no one but me to everyone has it. And then our mind takes us into this, what I call kind of mind trickery of, well, I just have to live with it. And I've heard many other imposter syndrome, quote unquote, experts or authors say, oh, normalize it. That's a good thing. That's the way to handle it. But, you know, and I have a very different position on this. I say no. I say don't normalize this because when you normalize those experiences and we're talking about anxiety, do we want to normalize anxiety? We're talking about rumination. We're talking about things that lead to, you know, very prolonged stress that can lead to burnout. It, it can lead to, you know, poor sleep. Do we want to normalize that? I don't think so. So I say, you know, please be stubborn. Say, no, this isn't normal. I don't, I think there's a way to get past it. If you just leave a possibility, a sliver of possibility that you can get past imposter syndrome, I can show you how to do it. I can show you how to do it. You do not just have to live with this. You do not... You can choose what you want to choose. I never want to tell people, you must do this, you must do that. I don't believe in in those um, superlatives. But I do believe that if somebody wants to, if they truly would like to flow through life with grace and ease, still nailing it, you know, still with that drive, 
but flowing more than fighting, they can do it. Wow. I think that way sounds so much better, Cheryl. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It does. And, you know, I'll tell you, it feels so much better. You know, this is where I am now, but, and, oh, my gosh, I could go on and on about my stories. And who knows, really, because so many of those stories happen inside in our mind. But I, you know, the rumination, the worry about what everyone else was thinking, was I good enough? You know, I was great about feeling my fear and doing it anyway. I, I was really, always have been, you know, pretty bold about taking risks. So, you know, and if I had a fear, I would actually put myself, you know, right in front of the train. I, I would attack it head on. But that didn't make my imposter syndrome experience go away. So um, just being able to wake up with that lightness and that feeling like eh, it is what it is or, you know, maybe they're thinking that, but maybe they're not. I don't know. You know, so why am I going to worry myself about it? I don't have enough information or, oh, they do think that. Well, they don't really know me and. You know, they're probably going through their own stuff. I'm not going to worry too much about it. You know, just waking up with that lightness of being able to, when something hits me, kick myself back into the healthy zone. It's it's a whole different reality for me. It's a whole different world. And it is for the people that I've helped with this. They're they're just like moving and grooving. I mean, (laughs) they're just, you know. And, and, you know, so many people were, so many of them were moving and grooving. So many of them were so highly successful before, but they're, they're just so at peace now. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a much better way to go about it. So give us some examples of actions that we could take right now. Some, something simple, obviously, that we could do right now to help us if we have imposter syndrome to any degree. Yeah. So, so if you are experiencing, and there are degrees, I'm so glad you said that because I have this whole framework in my book that are the, these archetypes, right? I have seven archetypes. So it can show up at, in different ways, you know, like the perfectionist or the people pleaser, or the lone ranger or the superhero. You know, you, you know, there's so many ways, the master, you, there's so many ways that these can show up. And at different degrees at different times. But one of the things that happens universally is that when we are in that worry, in that stress, worrying about this, thinking about this, overdoing, overthinking, overpleasing, overperfecting, we tend to be in our stress brain, right? We tend to be in that fight or flight. Our limbic system, which is that part of our nervous system that is the fight or flight, kind of takes over and what that does is it pulls resources from our parasympathetic nervous system so the sympathetic nervous system is what i'm talking about the parasympathetic is is more of your rest and digest but it doesn't mean we're resting on our laurels it just means that our body is working the way it's supposed to be working and what that means in the brain this is so so important What that means in our brain is at the front of your, if you put your hand over your forehead right now, that front part of your brain just behind your forehead is called your prefrontal cortex. And that's where all your logic and your reasoning and your, you know, conscious decision making takes place. All the consequential thinking. And 
resources are pulled away from that part of our brain that are so important, right, to the amygdala or the fight or flight part of our brain that feels like there's we're um you know that there's there's something to, to be worried about there's there's some kind of um attack perhaps going to happen and so and then our amygdala gets bigger and it gets turned on almost in a chronic way so the most important thing that i always tell people first is i want you to learn and train your brain train your mind how to get into your parasympathetic nervous system your not just your brain your whole body and you do that through breathing and so many people know this but they don't necessarily practice it so the trick is if you know this to hear this with new ears hear this and say okay why am i not practicing this and so the deep breathe the breathing is to take a really deep breath slowly four to four to six or eight counts, hold it for the same number of counts, and then release it for the same number of counts, just low and slow, pulling it in really deeply like you're pulling it into the base of your spine. Three to five times will put you almost immediately into your parasympathetic nervous system. And then you can take some other actions, and I'll give you a couple more. But that's so, so important, and I just want to stress this because when we are in that stress brain, we have normalized it. We just kind of go about holding our breath, thinking that that is normal. And it's not. It's wreaking havoc on our system. And so the best thing to do is train yourself during non-consequential times. I do my deep breathing as soon as I wake up in the morning. When I go to make my coffee, standing at the coffee maker, I have little triggers, right? Little things I link it to. When I sit down at my computer, you know, I I have little ways. So then, then if something consequential happens and I feel really stressed, my brain and my body know where to go. They've already practiced it enough that they know to go into that deep breathing and I can calm myself right down. So all of a sudden you're in there and you're comparing yourself to someone else or someone triggers something or you feel like you're, you know, you're not good enough. Somebody, you just did a presentation and there was a flaw and you think everybody saw that flaw and what am I going to do? And they're going to think that, you know, I don't deserve this position or I who they, they they made a mistake by hiring me or whatever it was that's going through your mind you take this deep breath that first and then you remind yourself you know what this this is probably just me making this all up in my mind this isn't even real this isn't i don't have enough information i don't know what they're thinking i don't know until i know so why am i filling in the blanks with the negative Maybe instead I could fill in the blanks with some positive, like what went well. So you can start to change your self-talk. You know, that's the next thing. So I actually have 20 exercises that I go through in my book. But th those two first are the most powerful, is that breathing in your self-talk. Um, and one other thing that people can do right away is create what I call your badass list. And these are just a list of all the things that you've accomplished, your real accomplishments, you know. And I don't want you to just put down the awards and the degrees and the positions and the sales numbers and the people you've helped or whatever those metrics are. I want you to put down the soft skills. Are you a good listener? 
Are you really punctual? You know, do you respect other people? Do you embrace diversity? What are the things about you that do you stand up for people? Do you, you know, take risks? Are you a great risk taker? Whatever those things are, write those down because those are badass, you know, write those down and then look in a mirror. I don't know if you've ever done mirror work again, but it's really powerful and you feel so silly doing it, but oh my gosh, it's, it's transformational. And you stand in front of the mirror and you say all those things out loud to you so you can see yourself speaking them. And so you're speaking them out loud and you're saying them. And by the way, when you write them down, write them with a pen and paper because that's your intuition comes in through that. And then the next step, if you will, is to just type those up in the notes on your phone. So if you're ever in a position and you're away from that note, you've got it right there on your phone and you can remind yourself what a badass you are. Wow. A lot of good takeaways from that. And I can't speak highly enough about breathing. A matter of fact, <laughs> I had a, a guest on Kimberly Faith who her whole session was about breath work and the power of your breath and using obviously your parasympathetic to really engage that and help you. So I think a lot of people probably underestimate the power of breathing because we breathe normally, so to speak, every day. And so I think sometimes we underestimate the power of what breathing can do. And you talked about, you know, four in, hold it, you know, four out and you know, breathing in and out. And I think, and it doesn't have to be a long exercise that can really help your parasympathetic really relax and really help you. And then self-talk, boy, what a biggie. That could be a whole session. That could be a day session on self-talk, right? <laughs> oh, I know, I know. And you know, the thing that I know self-talk, back to the breathing for a second, you know, it was, it was really interesting, Anne, because I did a keynote down in Cancun for um, a group of really high-level entrepreneurs. And and I asked everyone, who knows about this breathing? And I would say probably 70 to 80% of the room raised their hand. And I said, okay, keep your hands up if you practice it, if you actually, you know, go into that deep breathing in a regular, in a, you know, daily habit, as a daily habit. And all the hands went down. <laughs> Every single one, there was not one hand up. And so that's the key is the doing because there's so many things we know in life, but it's that gap, that chasm between knowing and doing. So it's really, really important to do this mindfully. You know, we do this consciously until it becomes unconscious. That's really the premise of everything I do. I bring the unconscious conscious, we reset it, and then we make it unconscious again. Boy, I like that. That's really great because it is so true without taking action or the actual doing. We know a lot of things, but actually applying it and applying it consistently to help us is a whole nother story. So I love that example. So even super successful people who know about it really don't practice it or don't practice it consistently for sure. So really making some of these simple things doable, you know, the badass list of accomplishments and just saying that in front of a mirror. Again, these are super simple things that we all can do easily, consistently when we apply these. 
and then you have, I guess, 18 other exercises because you had said, I believe you said you had 20 exercises, 18 other exercises that are probably just as simple that we certainly can take action on and really apply to help us with this. Now, earlier you talked about the seven archetypes and is there, can you go a little bit more into depth about what the seven are and just briefly describe those for us? Sure, absolutely. So there, the um, it, so just so anyone that's listening understands what the purpose of this is, because I think it's really important, you know, that this is not ever was never meant, and it is not a label. This is really more of a way for us to understand a body of symptoms that can seem disparate. So I I worked in healthcare for five years. And we had a patient population that had very difficult to, to, to diagnose immune disorders. And so they would go for most of their lives, either have being misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. And many of them couldn't even get up off of the couch to hug their children. This is how debilitating it was. So it was just life changing for them to get a proper diagnosis. This is not meant to give you a diagnosis, but it's meant to be a diagnostic tool for you to understand. Because what happens is we see our behaviors, but the behaviors themselves, if you start to go down into the mind, they're all spun from our beliefs, very, very, very deep, deep beliefs. And even below that, the experiences or our interpretation of those experiences that created these belief systems, like I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy, or I'm not deserving, or my voice doesn't matter, or I don't matter. So, so when I say these, I just want you to understand it's really meant to be a framework. And it really is not a framework where somebody says, oh, that's me, that's the one I am. I had all seven of these. And again, I don't like to say had, but experienced. I experienced all seven of these. So this really comes from my own experience and the experience of, you know, people that were in my panels, in my groups, my clients. So some people will say, you know what, I identify with more than one. I identify with all seven. It seems like there are five, but these two are really predominant for me. And that really helps in terms of, well, okay, this is where we want to concentrate on because those those are how the behaviors are showing up so i just wanted to preface that with this so there's the perfectionist and i think so many of us especially high achieving people tend to identify and especially women with the perfectionist and there's the self-critical perfectionist there's the other critical perfectionist and there's the other oriented or other oriented perfectionist and then the socially conditioned perfectionist so you can have all three of those as well there's the people pleaser. There's, that's another big, big one. We tend to um, have trouble setting boundaries. We put ourselves last in our own lives. And unfortunately, the truth is we end up feeling resentful, you know, but we're the ones that actually set the plate. So perfectionist people pleaser. There's the lone ranger. The lone ranger feels like they need to do everything alone by themselves. Because core to that is if I ask for help, someone might realize I'm not good enough to do it by myself. So there's this fear again of not good enough. 
there's the master. The master feels like they always need one more degree or one more certification to be good enough. Dr. Valerie Young, who wrote The Secrets of, I, I want to make sure I say her name, her book right. Oh, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. She also talks about the expert in her book, and she talks about a couple of these others in her book as well um, that she describes as competency type. So I just wanted to point that out because, you know, it was interesting to see her work with the expert. She talks about the expert, which is very similar to my master. And then there was there is the, so let me go through these perfectionist, people pleaser, lone ranger, the master, there's the superhero. We all probably relate to that superhero archetype, right? We feel like we need to swoop in and take care of everything, take care of everyone. You know, if there's a job to be done, we're the person to take care of it. And uh, we just end up taking on too much. And then there's the savior. The savior wants to swoop in and save the day. And sometimes when this is really maladaptive, the savior will even create chaos so they can come in and save the day. But this is all below the surface. They don't even realize they're doing it. So that's what I mean about making the unconscious conscious and then taking that and resetting it and then making that unconscious again. So there's the savior. And then the last one, um, I was really inspired by Dr. Young's work on this one. It's the prodigy. And the prodigy feels like they need to go from zero to hero or beginner to mastery immediately. Or they're not good enough because that in between, you know, competency staircase where they're learning and they're going to fall back a little slip, make mistakes, maybe even quote unquote fail. It's so scary because they're afraid they're going to be seen as not good enough. So oftentimes with the prodigy, they'll quit or they won't even take on a new challenge if they don't think it's kind of in their wheelhouse and they can immediately become an expert or, or a master at it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I appreciate you going over those seven frameworks to just give us a better idea of what those are. You know, Cheryl, so many times we self-sabotage ourselves. So what makes us actually self-sabotage ourselves? I'd like your insight on that. Mm. Yeah, I do a lot of work with self-sabotage and, and I have to have a voyage past self-sabotage. And sabotage, when we sabotage ourselves, we are not consciously out to sabotage ourselves. Who would do that? We would not consciously try to walk away from our dreams or not be the person that we want to be, you know, not do the things that we feel are going to move us forward. So it's really below the surface. It's in our subconscious. And when we look into the subconscious, you almost want to think of like that iceberg, right? Metaphor where you see the top of the iceberg, which is our consciousness, but the most of that iceberg is below the surface. And just below the surface are the behaviors. They're observable if we'll stop and look at them. But if you keep going down into that iceberg, you start to get into like the self-talk that we talked a little bit about, that constant chatterbox in your brain. And below that or right around it are the thoughts. And we are not our thoughts. Our, we have thoughts about our thoughts. Our thoughts come in, they go out. Some of them stay and loop for way too long, like unwelcome tenants. 
And then below that are our beliefs. But remember, I mentioned earlier that there's something even below the beliefs. If we keep going down, because where did our beliefs come from? We weren't born into this world with our beliefs. And I'm not talking about religious beliefs, by the way. I'm talking about beliefs like good enough, worthy, deserving. My voice matters. I matter or not. And those come from our experiences. And it's really not so much the experiences themselves, because we even know two people can be in the same room, see the same thing, have the exact same experience and have different takeaways and different beliefs about them. So, so much weighs into it. So it's our interpretation at that age and that stage. Our interpretation based on our own little personality, other things going along, other things that have happened before that you know, that have already layered to start that belief system. So it's the beliefs are really based on those experiences. And those experiences can be other people's beliefs that we hear we take on as our own, right? So so when we're talking about self-sabotage, we have to kind of go down below the surface and look at where did those beliefs come from that would make me fear? Because usually there's a bit of fear, right? We can sense doubt and fear in that self-sabotage, whether we're procrastinating or we're not raising our hand for a promotion or we're not making that call to the client that showed interest, but we forget to follow up or we procrastinate so much that we don't send that email, you know, or whatever that is that we, we, we are doing that are, that is, seems to be purposeful, but it really isn't. And so somewhere below that, there's a belief below that fear. What created that fear? What created the distrust? You know, what happened to our trust in ourselves? Where did that come from? Well, if you keep going, you get into the beliefs. You get into even below that. What was that experience? What happened to me? At what age and what stage that created a seed that took root and grew into this self-limiting belief? or cause these blocks and these fears. Where is that? So that's where I usually get into, I go a little deeper with self-sabotage. Now, there are a lot of things we can do to reprogram that, but that other half of the reprogramming is repatterning. And this is the part that most people shine in when they're working with self-sabotage, is the repatterning. They'll help you say, okay, if you're procrastinating, for example, here are some really good things to re-pattern the mind. What, what do I mean by that? Our brain, our mind is very efficient. And so if we do something over and over, and that can be even our beliefs, thoughts, or self-talk, not just behaviors, it will see a pattern. And it will start to create what they call, we call a neural pathway. And it becomes the path of least resistance so that we can do it unconsciously. So our brain will automatically go there. So to repattern, we have to create a new neural pathway and stay away from that old one so it starts to become what neuroscientists call extinct. And we create a nice, deep, new neural pathway for that behavior. We're still looking at the behavior of procrastination. You know, we do things to not procrastinate. I'm going to take that first step. Every time I procrastinate, I'm going to snap a rubber band on my wrist. 
and then I'm going to think about what that tiny little step is and I'm going to give myself a little reward and we have ways that we can start to create new neural pathways or new new habits and repattern. But what is so frustrating I find for so many people is they'll feel like they'll fall back into that old pattern. Do you know what I mean, Anne? Absolutely. You fall back into it. And it's because we need to also reprogram. Reprogram and repattern. We need to get in and reset that root. What happened that caused that belief that's not serving you? That disempowering belief. What happened? And how can we switch that up? And I think sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, Cheryl, is that we can have beliefs that we think are serving us that are positive, but aren't necessarily serving us. Isn't that true? Wow, yes. And okay, I mean, if you're driving, you probably want to pull over. <laughs> uh, this is big, what you just said. These are the stories we tell ourselves. My book is full of my own stories. I mean, I'm pretty vulnerable about the stories I would tell myself, like the people-pleasing. Let's just take that one. That people-pleasing is a good thing that we're just being nice. Isn't that the story we tell ourselves? You know, we're the one that's going to take on everything, but it isn't. It's maladaptive because when you don't set set boundaries, people will cross them and they don't know. They don't know. It's not their fault. You didn't set the boundaries when you don't, you know, they don't know that you're going to end up feeling resentful. So we tell ourselves a good story or the perfectionism. Perfectionism is another one. It's highly maladaptive. Perfection is the enemy of progress. There is no such thing as perfection. Coming from a recovered perfectionist, the fact that I can make a mistake today and I laugh at myself, oh, I, that was not me. You know, that, you know, there's a mistake on something and I go, oh, well, what do I need to do now that it is what it is? You know, let's just do better next time. It doesn't mean that I'm diminishing the importance of doing a good job. It just means that we're human. We're human. So with perfectionism, we tell ourselves a lot of good stories. Look how good I am. Look how great this is. It's so much better than it would have been if I didn't put in this extra effort. Well, that extra effort is good if it's energizing and it's not holding you back from progress. It's maladaptive if you are ruminating about it, if you are losing sleep, if you are putting it ahead of your family or going out with friends or doing things that are good for you that are self-care. If you are using that perfectionism and it is you know, triggering everyone else on your team and they never feel good enough because you have this, you know, it's good to raise the bar and have high, you know, expectations. But, you know, if now they're getting triggered and they feel like they can never be good enough in your presence, then that's not good. That's maladaptive. So we tell ourselves the stories and, you know, it really is, it's a bit of, um, it really creates a, it really requires a growth mindset. It really create, requires being willing to look at our blind spots. I go through this in the Voyage Past Self Sabotage where we really get into stories 
and we really write them down and we look at them and then we create new stories that are more empowering. I think we could talk about these topics for days. I am mm. I'm so into it. I think this is really useful, knowledgeable information that we all can apply and to help everyone you have actually a self-sabotage quiz on your website that I think we all would love to take, have access to to help us as well. And so if they go to, isn't it CherylAndJeanette.com and then they'll yeah. find the self-sabotage quiz? Yeah, yeah, I'm super easy to find. Um, my website is Cheryl, Cheryl's with an S, S-H-E-R-Y-L, and Jeanette, A-N-J-A-N-E-T-T-E. But super easy to find. Website is CherylAnnJeanette.com, and there's there are the two quizzes. One is on imposter syndrome, and one self sabotage, as you've said. And uh, let's see, um, all my social media, LinkedIn does have a hyphen between my name, and it's pretty easy to find me in that regard. And you know, if you're curious about my book, you can either look it up on Amazon. It's called The Imposter Lies Within: Silence Your Inner Critic. Tame Your Fear, Unleash Your Badassery. Um, my husband's friends love to tease me about my badassery. They think that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things, if I can say about the book, and if you get the book, a lot of people ask me, and the Audible will be out soon, ask me because they want to get the Audible, and I love to listen to Audibles too. I really encourage people getting the paperback. And the reason I say that is because there are, this is just not a book you're gonna read and put away. It's really a book that you use. It's like a workbook. It's just, you're gonna to wanna to dog ear it. You're gonna to wanna to highlight. You're gonna to wanna to go back to the exercises. You know, there's an appendix for the exercises. The exercises really work if you do them. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big, paper person because of that I high people are like are you a teacher are you a proofreader it's like no I just like to highlight and make notes in my books and workbooks and everything I can so I'm definitely a paper person over listening to something because I like being able to go back to it and reference things so I would obviously strongly recommend getting the paperback as well over the audio any other thoughts that you might have that you think would be useful for us? You know, one thing I would just say is, and please listen to me, really listen to me and internalize this. You are good enough. You are worthy. You are deserving. Your voice, not only does it matter, it is so needed and so welcomed. And you matter, you matter so much. So please, please embrace those and everything you're doing. You can do this with grace, with ease. You can bring harmony back into your life if things feel disharmonious, you can do that. So that's what I would love to leave you with. I think that's a powerful something to leave us with, Cheryl, and I appreciate that. Appreciate your time, your very valuable time with joining us today. And I look forward to actually diving into these quizzes and your book myself. Wonderful. Wonderful, Anne. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's really been such a power hour. I really appreciate it.
Well, my hope for our time together with Cheryl is that you got value and an idea or two that will help you be even more successful professionally and personally. Feel free to share my podcast with others as it can be found on most podcast platforms and in most English speaking countries and of course at accountabilitycoach.com. And if you'd like to get a short daily fix from me, subscribe to the Accountability Minute, which can also be found on most podcast platforms and in most English speaking countries. And remember to subscribe to my proven business success resources and tips blog by going to accountabilitycoach.com forward slash blog and always aim for what you want each and every single day. Until next time, make it a great day today and every day. I appreciate you listening.